This is not the media. This is hell. Today, far-right nationalist politics of polarization, outrageous antics and statements made by those holding national office, immigration as some sort of existential existential national threat, uh, politics that prioritize personalities over policy, all in the face of economic stagnation, especially for the working class. That about sums up exactly how we got here with a Trump White House that alleges its opponents want to hurt God by helping rapists enter the country while boasting of press conference television ratings during a global pandemic that has killed at least 165,000 people here in the United States. It also sums up what is happening in Italy, and it happened in Italy first. Yep, our future is Italy. From an opposition that embraced neoliberalism and the extinguishing of all leftist politics and politicians within their ranks, paving the way for the rise of the far right and anti-collectivism to be embraced by all sides. If it's happening here, it likely happened there first. So what does this mean for the future of U.S. politics when our future is Italy's present? We'll find out in a few when we have the return of Rome-based writer and translator David Broder, author of First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. David is a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine, the European editor, and regularly writes on Italian politics for publications, including Internazionale. This is David's third appearance on This Is Hell. David was on last in June 2018 to talk about Italy's election that had just been completed. David had posted the articles at Jacobin, Salvini's triumph, and notes on Italy's election. You can find both of those interviews at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Broder, B-R-O-D-E-R. And you can follow David on Twitter at Broderly, B-R-O-D-E-R. L-Y, Broder with the letters L-Y after it. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell you are listening to, completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support, where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. There's plenty of ways to do just that, including subscribing to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Soon, we hope all our entire archive of shows will be online, but in order to do so, we have to pay programmers which is why we need your support. Last week on Patreon, we featured a very prescient interview with writer Kai Wright from three months before the 2008 financial collapse. Kai was on to warn everyone about the subprime swindle that was already devastating black America, even if the rest of America didn't know it yet. Also, during last Friday's Patreon podcast, I described the horrible feeling of catching the person who had been stealing packages from the building where I live And I realized that picking up a 150 to 160 pound man while your back is not in that great of shape probably will cause back pain for the next several days. But you can only hear that by subscribing to our exclusive Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. By the way, at the end of Monday's show, I was talking about how we might call that Antifa phone number that was going around social media during our Patreon podcast this Friday. I thought it would be kind of a classic cliche talk radio goof the number was portrayed as a recruitment hotline for antifa and if you signed up you would supposedly get a call from the antifa leader alex 
saw the Antifa leader part and figured it was a left-wing troll trying to get those on the right upset, leading to tons of angry phone calls. I thought it was the Nigerian prince model. I always think everything is the Nigerian prince model, and I guess I got to get over that. Get the dumbest people to call up earnestly, actually expecting to get a call, at which point I was hoping the callback would be the best part of the whole scam. I thought that that would be hilarious. Turns out Alex was correct, and it was just some left-wing troll who has now accumulated a vast wealth of angry right-wingers leaving messages. So we won't be calling it Friday because that's just stupid. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing as always is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? Uh, first of all, let me take a little victory lap. I am undefeated on hoaxes. <laughs> uh, except for I always it- think Nigerian Prince model. Every time. I figure it's so stupid, it can't be blatantly that stupid for a reason, you know? Undefeated on hoaxes, except... Uh- All that money I gave to Bernie Sanders. (laughs) You gave money to Bernie Sanders? I don't want to talk about it. you got to be freaking kidding me, dude. (laughs) You know how... I don't even want to tell you how big of a fight I got in with my girlfriend about that. Have I since then calculated how much mulch I could have bought with uh, that? (laughs) Yes, I have. And uh, it's a lot of mulch I get really mad every single time. I was hoping the question from hell would be, who is the leader of Antifa? So, Alex, what what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is... What is the name of the system you want? What is the name of the system you want? What's the name of the system you want? Uh, my dictation is always super slow. I should have learned that Norton dictation technique, and then I would have been able to read my auntie's diary and figure out what the hell is going on with her my grandmother. You have really nice signature, though. I mean, no one else knows this, I think, but uh, you might be surprised. Chuck has a really good signature. Mm, yep, it comes from uh, being, you know, Catholic. I don't know why. That's part of the theology there? <laughs> yeah. Damn. <laughs> the listener with our favorite answer to this week's question from L Wednesday, this is hell, medical face mask. I'm not Catholic anymore, in case anybody's wondering. You, you can't get that stink off of you, though. You can see the mask right now. Even order your own when you go to thisishell.com and click on support to get to our swag page. There are three different kinds of masks now to choose from. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner after Jeff Dorchin delivers his moment of truth. This week, Jeff prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. And I wonder if that has to do with that upstate New York farm that was gouging uh, customers on prices of eggs right after the pandemic hit, including gouging West Point. I don't know if that's related to it, but I saw that story in the news today and I thought maybe that's what Jeff's talking about when he's talking about rotten eggs for the workers of the world. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Alex, you told me that you drove, when you were riding your bike over here today, you saw some of the destruction from the tornado yesterday. You want to describe that a little bit for our listening audience? Because it pretty much touched down halfway between here and your house. Yeah, and uh, my house just had a uh, nice breeze and nothing else. Although during the tornado siren, I was trying to coax my dog, who was scared of the basement, down into the basement with a hot dog. Uh, it didn't work, so I just ate the hot dog. Uh, but then I walked, I rode my bike through Rogers Park proper, which is just a giant green space and uh, tons of old trees just totally ripped up. 
uh, totally uprooted and thrown across. It's uh, it's wild out there. You should go take a look if you are in the Rogers Park area. It's kind of fun. A lot of crews out there working right now. Yeah, we uh, national news all over the national news uh, around here. A lot of uh, limbs were down. Uh, Monday, an EF1 tornado touchdown, like we were saying, about three-quarters of a mile west and about a mile north of this here studio. Tornado knocked out power for over six hours Monday and then for a bit again yesterday. Trees have been uprooted. Cars were totaled by falling trees. Branches became projectiles actually sticking in the walls of people's homes, like the inside of people's homes. The street the tornado went down was has become completely impassable. The localized twister even eventually you know, headed out to Lake Michigan, became a water spout, but not before it had strewn timber all over the neighborhood. West Ridge and the one, uh, our, this neighborhood, West Ridge, and the one that's between us and the lake, that's Rogers Park. So because of the power outage yesterday, we were, or yesterday and the day before, we were not able to do yesterday's show. We hope everybody in the area is safe and sound, and thanks to everyone who contacted us concerned about our safety, and for all of you, those who may be concerned about Ladio.com and his safety in Baltimore during that gas explosion, he is also safe. We want to send we want you to send us your thoughts on the show. Always suggestions for guests or topics, criticism, both constructive and destructive. And if you do, we will likely read your writing on air. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter or use Facebook's Messenger. Last week, we mentioned how we got an email from Glenn, the media coordinator for Yana Ludwig, who, as Glenn informed us, is running for U.S. Senate in Wyoming as a socialist in one of the reddest states in the country and is a founding member of Wyoming's only cooperative. So we asked you, listeners, if we should have politicians on the show. Our guideline has been not to, it's, again, it's not a rule, but it has always been not to have anyone on from big politics or big business because those are the voices that dominate the corporate establishment news media, and this is not the media, this is hell. However, I wondered, what about having on politicians from alternative parties with alternative politics that do not get the attention from the media, although we've done that maybe 20 years ago with Green Party members, and it failed horribly. So we asked you, should we be having on politicians or even people from alternative uh, politicians from alternative politics? Here's how you're responding so far. Greg writes, Chuck, no, love y'all, Greg. I'm not quite sure where Greg stands on us having politicians on the show or not. I'm thinking he's leaning toward the negative with his one-word, two-letter response, but I'm not quite certain. So let's see how others are replying. Mike in Seattle writes, Hello, Chuck and Alex. Say you get dragged to a show, which you really are not interested in seeing. Right before going into the venue, you get high to try to make the experience less bad. There you are, stoned, watching the show that you do not want to watch. Suddenly, surprise, audience, participation. Makes my skin crawl. Thankfully, in this case, I'm here by choice. Now, I'm not sure what Mike from Seattle is trying to get at with that analogy. You may have figured it out. I haven't, but let us move on. Mike continues, there is almost always an election going on at any point in time in the U.S. Always someone starting their multi-year campaign to get into some office at some level of government. I don't think you can have politicians on without having some significant portion of airtime dedicated to discussing the latest campaign memoir book. Mike, if that's the case, then I am 
going to take your response as a no. Mike adds, every politician has written or has had ghosts written some sort of memoir with a specious story about why their whole life has prepared them to be the right person for this exact moment, for this exact government position. It started in first grade when I stood up to a bully. Sure. Anyways, in response to your question on Thursday's show, I prefer no politicians on This Is Hell. There are plenty of other places to hear those interviews. You would get more patrons, though, on Patreon. Good luck figuring that one out. Love the show. I trust you all would make it interesting and thought-provoking either way. Sincerely, Mike Seattle. Mike, everything we have ever done that we thought would boost our audience... Never has. Of course, this is not the media, so we rarely think about how we can increase our audience. Putting people before profits is a real bad business model, so there's definitely no guarantee that if we had, say, socialists running for U.S. Senate in Wyoming, Yana Ludwig, or Kamala Harris, or Joe freaking Biden on the show, even Trump, I doubt it would help us grow our listenership. In fact, we have no idea what determines why we suddenly may have a jump in Patreon subscribers or people getting swag at thisishell.com where they click on support. We were actually offered a Bernie Sanders interview in 2015 and turned it down because we figured, how is that going to help out our audience? So, it all seems pretty much random, what generates any fluctuation in our audience. Mike from Seattle, there's definitely no guarantee having a politician on the show will get more listeners because the few times we have been had done that in the past... Yeah, it did not make us an overnight sensation. Kilter writes on the question of whether we should have politicians on the show. Dear Chuck, my opinion on interviewing politicians is not unless you find one that can hold up their end of an interesting conversation. And that has been a problem the few times we have talked to politicians on the show. Ralph Nader's a real powder keg. On the off chance that ever happens, I don't think it matters if they're independent, Democrat, or Republican, as long as they're not sucking at the teat of capitalism. Your show aside, I've been very much enjoying the occasional political interviews that The Dig of Dan Denver has been doing, as well as Chapo Trapas' uh, podcast. However, I don't think either has done justice to the Chicago City Socialist Caucus. It would be interesting for a podcaster very familiar with Chicago to interview a local socialist alderman or a, on a semi-regular basis and document how their activism evolves over a period of years. Thank you, Kilter. Actually, part of the, uh, this neighborhood is in a ward where the alderman is a member of the Chicago City Socialist Caucus, and that would be Andre Vasquez, who upset longtime incumbent alderman Patrick O'Connor, a real tool, in the most recent elections and has had organizing events actually at Carrie's at the bar downstairs. So Chicago locals what do you think of us asking Alderman Andre Vasquez to be a guest on the show to talk about the Chicago Socialist Caucus? You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or send something via Facebook, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Again, Chicago locals, as well as listeners from around the world, should we reach out to a local Chicago alderman who is a member of the Chicago City Socialist Caucus or is even having politicians with alternative politics? Not all that great of an idea. So far, Greg says no to politicians on the show. Mike says no, but if we want more patrons, we should have politicians on the show. And Kilter says as long as they're not sucking at the teat of capitalism. Email us at chuckatthisishell.com, alexatthisishell.com. Tweet to us at This Is Hell Radio. Send us a message via Facebook. This is hell. Coming up, the future of U.S. politics may very well be 
Italy's present. Also, Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. What's the name of the system you want? What's the name of the system you want? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can find right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. From a near-universal embrace of neoliberalism and anti-collectivism to a polarizing nationalism, outrageous antics with personalities prioritized over politics and an opposition that paved the way for far-right governance, Italy would appear to have a lot in common with the U.S. In fact, it happened in Italy first. Here to help us understand what the future of U.S. politics may very well be returning to, this is how Rome-based writer and translator David Broder is author of First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. Welcome back to This Is Hell, David. Hi, Chuck. Thanks, Thanks for having me on again. It's always great to have you on the show, sir, and I apologize for not having you on since June 2018. I can't believe it's been two years. You can find both oh, of Oh, wow. It's been <laughs> yeah, a long time. I know. I, I was very surprised myself. We're not going to make that mistake again, I promise, David. This is David's Excellent. third appearance on This Is Hell. David was on last again, June 2018, to talk about Italy's election that had just been completed. You can find out more about David by following him on Twitter at Broderly. That's his first, last name, Broder, with the letters L-Y following it. So you write as Italy prepared to join the Eurozone. One leading editor at La Repubblica issued a book entitled Germanazione. I'm not going to pronounce that well. Uh, characterizing the single <laughs> currency as a uh, that was horrible as a German takeover, but saying this was a good thing. Mario Monti, who became prime minister in 2011, concurred that if Italy was to become a normal country, it would require some external bind, what he called denying our own selves a little. What seemed least of all normal in such moments was their obsession with foreign models. Why does Italy so often look to others as their model for their present and future? What don't, why don't they look for answers internally or from corrections to their past mistakes? What does that reveal to you about Italy when they look elsewhere instead of looking internally? Well, I think there's a, a very long tradition of uh, Italian elites who seek to um, impose some sort of foreign model, which they think will uh, be able to reform and regenerate Italian society, essentially carrying through a kind of revolution from above. Uh, and this was an idea even at the moment of national unification in the 1860s. Uh, and, you know, the kind of uh, the collecting together of a bunch of small and backward monarchies and basically the idea of you know creating a creating a, 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 a new state from above and in that moment uh, Germany was going through pretty much the same process but was far more advanced far more industrialized so even then there was this idea that basically what Italy needed to do was follow uh, the the german uh, example and the book you mentioned is uh, is called germanization and and basically kind of in the early 90s uh this this idea really really gained strength um in in italy basically that if uh you know italy took part in uh, uh european integration and common rules were imposed from brussels on all of the member states then this would basically end up making Italy like Germany because uh, it would it would be subject to the same kind of 
um, the same kind of fiscal rules, uh, you know, budget balancing and so on, uh, the same uh, common European economic policy uh, and so on. Uh, and also the idea was that this would you know, clean up public life and end corruption and basically solve all manner of kind of cultural ills. Um, so this is a, a very kind of elitist discourse. Often, often really, it's a kind of expression of like basically sort of posh and uh, uh, sort of internationally facing Italians think that they're better than the masses and that uh, if only they could copy some foreign example, that would make everything better. Uh, of course, what I really uh, argue in my book is that more or less the opposite process is actually true, which is that rather than Italy being sort of backward and stuck in the past and needing to reform to catch up with modern and successful and industrialized economies and so on, uh, that actually what's happening in Italy is a bit of a, what, well, in England we say a kind of canary in the coal mine, uh, that basically what has happened in Italian politics, Italian public life in the last 30 years is actually an accelerated and concentrated version of of the kind of developments which are taking place everywhere, uh, and those are you know basically negative lessons. Uh, so you know obviously uh, you know uh, an obvious comparison would be the the rise of Berlusconi in the early 1990s, uh, bringing sort of far right forces into government, uh, and the breakdown of the party system. Uh, the perpetual economic stagnation. So if you look at those kind of things, there's obvious parallels to what's happening in other uh, supposedly more successful countries today. Do you think that the same, is, is this a fair comparison? Here in the United States, we often look toward Canada for healthcare solution problems, or we look toward Scandinavia for fixes to our social safety net. Do you see the same kind of thing playing out here in the United States? Does this reflect bankrupt domestic policies or an inaccessibility or unavailability of alternative politics within the United States, as may have been the case within Italy as well? Mm. Um, well, I mean, I, I think part of the, uh, you know, I mean, of course, every every country that that you know, or every political culture that looks to foreign examples will also see those examples through its own kind of experience. So maybe, you know, in the United States, you look positively at the, say, the Canadian or like Scandinavian healthcare system, and it's kind of easy to idealize uh, what those countries are actually like. Um, I think the problem in, in Italy, it's like the very thing that this kind of, uh, if you want to call it kind of elite discourse, uh, what it's actually aiming to do is is not import higher welfare standards or better hospitals or this kind of thing from other countries. Uh, and in fact, it, it often ignores many of the things in Italy which are really good. So, you know, um, the coronavirus hit Italy before any other Western country. And when that initially started happening, there were lots of these kind of cultural explanations. And this is very typical of Italian media, but also foreign media looking at Italy, is that they see everything through this prism of backwardness and incompetence and bad organization and so on. And, and you know, so like in, in, in Britain, for example, Boris Johnson was saying, well, we don't want to end up like the Italians with their messy chaos, um, which tens of thousands of people die of coronavirus. But in the end, the Italian response was much better than the British one and many other European countries, too. And Italy does have a good healthcare system. 
Um, so I think that particularly like if we're talking about the 1990s and since this kind of idea of making Italy like a, a normal country, particularly in terms of the European integration process, is in fact a politics of austerity and uh, cutting public spending. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a language of, of waste, of inefficiency, uh, and you know, the need to, to rein in uh, supposedly high public spending. And you know, the effect of that is always to, to, to put a squeeze on services uh, that people actually need. So I think that the 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 reason why um, the reason why this uh, sort of line of argument became so prominent uh, in the 1990s actually has a lot to do with the uh, the left's uh, search for a new identity after the end of the Italian Communist Party, uh, as a lot of the former leaders of that party uh, cut their links or historic links with the labour movement and instead became the uh, the champions of this kind of uh, uh, attempt to make Germany, sorry, attempt to make Italy uh, more like Germany or as a normal country, um, as they would put it. So, I mean, I think um, this, you know, Italy's entry into the European uh, project, or, or rather, sorry, the, uh, the acceleration of the integration process in the early 1990s coincided with the end of the Cold War, the end of the Communist Party, corruption scandals and the, uh, taking down the, the the christian democrats and socialists so so this was a moment of profound overhaul and change in italian politics and so this idea of a kind of top-down liberal uh, revolution uh, had its moment just, um, <clears throat> this is just something i was thinking of when you were replying to that and that is you were talking about the kind of the stereotypes that Italy had of Germany and how it could be efficient and how it's modern. You write in your book, you start off by writing how uh, Italy looked towards Britain as being a normal country, uh, a land of efficient bus service, friendly locals offering up trays of teas and cakes. And then you were just talking about the stereotypes that others have of Italy and Boris Johnson deriding Italy for their response. How much is... How much is European politics dominated by stereotypes that countries have of one another? How much do those stereotypes dominate politics in the EU? Oh, well, I think a lot, because if you look at the, um, I mean, if you look re- you know, recently in the European Union, there's been this uh, debate about uh, the recovery fund, which is, um, you know, uh, is the European Union going to bail out uh, the countries that are suffering most from economic crisis due to coronavirus, and does that mean um, higher taxes on uh, the wealthiest countries in order to to help the poorest, basically? Um, and now, as in the you know, as in the the crisis of uh, five or ten years ago with 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 Greece and so on, you have this endless recurrence of this idea, which is like. Uh, countries like Holland and Germany and Finland and Austria are like careful with their finances and don't waste money, whereas Southern Europeans are, you know, lazy and corrupt and waste money and like, you know, they're too busy at the beach rather than working. And like th- this is like leading figures in the European Union bureaucracy, you know, the head of the Eurogroup, uh, you know, like the 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 the. Council of Ministers that that controls the day-to-day function of the euro, or like the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, 
uh, you know, leading papers in Germany and so on. So, so that kind of <clears throat> that kind of very crude cultural stereotyping um, is very visible. Um, I mean, one thing I'd also say though is that um, so, like, I guess it's kind of like Italians uh, tend to have quite strongly the idea of you know, like in you know, in say British political life we wouldn't talk about what other countries think of us very much because we don't really care. Whereas I think like Italian uh, liberal press is like very sensitive to what um, what foreign media are saying about Italy. Um, but, you know, then again, I, I think they probably tend to exaggerate the extent to which uh, people in other European countries are, are thinking about Italy uh, at all. Um, so yeah, so I think this this kind of stereotype does have a certain weight, but 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 also it's like with with the with the idea of like Italians wanting to be like a, a normal country to catch up and this kind of thing, that that often uh, is associated with an extremely idealized uh, idea of, of what those uh, other uh, so-called models are, are actually like. You're right. The last 30 years of turmoil have indeed made volatility the new normal in Italian public life. Its parties change names constantly. Leading political personnel are prone to outrageous antics. And Italians love to talk about the idiosyncrasies that supposedly make this country beyond comparison. So why does entertaining politics seem to depoliticize, seem to unmotivate, if you will, uh, people, uh, unmotivate voters, unmotivate the population. Why does entertaining politics seem to depoliticize the population? Well, uh, do, you, do you mean the uh, the outrageous antics and so on? Exactly. The the interest in that, the, the you know, the mm -hmm. people love that kind of, the ratings are great for that kind of stuff. Uh, how does, uh, what is the impact of entertaining politics on sure. the ability of people to politicize themselves? Okay. I mean, one, one thing I'll preface what I say with is that I would r strongly reject the kind of idea that this is somehow natural or cultural or sort of rooted in the soil in some sort of eternal way, because, you know, Italians are just like that. I mean, if you look at Italian politics from the 1940s till the 1990s, uh, until you know, 1947 till 1994, uh, there was one party, the Christian Democrats, that were permanently in government with small allies, and then the biggest opposition party was the communists. And they, those parties, the Christian Democrats and communists, had two profoundly different ideas of how society should be run, very different value systems, very different theory behind it. I mean, obviously, you know, the one, the one side is God, the other side is communism. That's like a you know, big clash of of political identities, of values, and so on. Um, and I think, like the fact that the Italian politics of the last twenty five or thirty years is so obsessed with uh, sort of personal behaviour, uh, corruption, um, you know, uh, insults on TV shows, and, and this kind of stuff. I mean, of course, it's not entirely new, but but I would argue that it's 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 um, it's sort of dominant role in in day to day political life is is basically a product of the lack of real political choice. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, although, in a way, uh, you know, uh, Silvio Berlusconi 
is is you know a, a billionaire who entered politics purely for his own like personal business interests who was always allied to uh, far right parties who he brought into the uh, he brought into the political mainstream i mean if you look at his actual policies in government particularly on like the economy i mean he he was not substantially more right wing than the center left they basically have the same policy orientation of uh, European integration plus privatization of the Italian economy, uh, and in fact the and and suppre- um, suppression of historic labour rights. In, in many ways, the centre left was actually more aggressive than the centre right. Um, so I think that in that context, um, all this kind of idea of you know Berlusconi being uh, you know, a terrible guy who says sexist and racist jokes and who has dodgy personal finances. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot to criticize in that, but I think it's it's a central role in the the center left opposition to him is is basically because it doesn't want to talk about the real problems of Italians and their material conditions. It doesn't want to talk about the fact that. Uh, over the last 20 years, the Italian economy has shrunk. So, and you know, <laughs> structural mass unemployment has risen, wages have fallen. Like it, it would is much easier to talk about uh, the fact that you know Berlusconi says some awful thing or is an awful guy in his personal life than 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 to to actually talk about uh, you know real political problems. Um, so I think you know Italy, and you know, of course, it's not a purely Italian thing. Like we obviously see similarities with with uh, Trump and uh, Boris Johnson and so on. Um, so I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, basically, if they used to have very strong rooted part, uh, political parties, with uh, in you know, the Italian Communist Party had two million members. And still had 1.5 million members even when it dissolved in 1991. So, you know, local branches, large activist base and so on. Because all of that no longer exists, all you have is kind of party names and campaign machines. uh, But they really lack roots in society and they really lost the the kind of representative function uh, that parties used to have. We are speaking with David Broder. David is the author of the new book. First, they took Rome, how the populist right conquered Italy. First, they took Rome, how the populist right conquered Italy. You can follow David on Twitter at Broderly, and you can find our past interviews with David at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Broder. You write, what is happening today really is new in the post-war decades. Italy enjoyed such rapid economic growth that it even surpassed British GDP per capita. Its anomaly was precisely that it had a permanent party of government as well as the West's largest communist party in opposition. What role did that opposition play in any of Italy's rapid economic success? Did the opposition provide the necessary opposition to create that economic success? That's not to say this was all because the communists did it, but that they are an effective opposition that can lead to successful policies. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that um, something uh, in the Italian Communist Party is that it always has this kind of uh, its kind of self-conception in 
you know, after World War II, when it really becomes a mass party. You know, it's the biggest party in the resistance. It quickly, as I said, gets two million members. Um, it has this kind of idea, which is like Christian democratic Italy, the so you know the the cultural hegemony of the church, um, the Christian Democrats' roots among sort of, uh, among landowners and this kind of thing, is like as if uh, Italy hadn't really had a full developed capitalism yet, and that the Communist Party would modernize the country. It would get rid of the old feudal remnants, the control of the church, this kind of thing, and basically be a kind of secular modernizing force. In some ways, a quite social democratic uh, rather than so properly like Leninist outlook, because really it's a vision of um, like industrial development in which the state plays a, a leading role, but not like a planned economy. Um, but, you know, the PCI was never actually in national government. And I think that the, the left's uh, influence uh, on, on Italian economic growth uh, as such was more was more. Uh, was was less a matter of party politics and more more as a matter of um, uh, things like you know there was uh, um, the uh, IRI um, Industrial Reconstruction Institute actually something created that had been created under fascism uh, but you know like a kind of a, a planning body that would direct investment that would set up state-run companies. Uh, and that these things would basically build up Italy's like infrastructure and allow its rapid uh, industrialization uh, in in the the 1950s and 1960s. So I, I, I don't think that the Communist Party can can as such be credited with um, economic growth. Um, you know, a lot a lot a lot of it's uh, that is just to do with the fact that it was a, a rapidly uh, industrializing country. Uh, that said. What certainly has happened since uh, since uh, the 1980s is that the uh, the the bases of that kind of success, that kind of state uh, intervention to 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 direct the economy, direct resources, and so on, uh, even talking about just like directing private capital, uh, that that's basically disappeared. Like because in the uh, from the 80s, like uh, the the body I mentioned, National, uh, sorry, the uh, Industrial Reconstruction Institute, uh, its companies were sold off, uh, privatized. Uh, infrastructure like roads and railways was also privatized uh, during its time in the Economic Monetary Union. Um, Italy's uh, state investment has fallen by about 40 percent. Um, so a lot of the tools that the state would once have used to uh to to intervene in the economy to support employment and so on uh, have basically gone away um in fact though i, I mean I, I think it's it's generally true of uh, you know it's like we often talk about the kind of social democratic consensus after world war ii um you know in countries like france and west germany and britain uh, as well as italy and there's this idea of this like pact between capital and labor and where you have this uh, state investment and so on but in a lot of in the other countries as well, uh, that was often under centre right uh, governments. Uh, so I don't think it, it's necessarily a matter of the uh, the left uh, sort of pushing that from from national government. So uh, how much did the Communist Party? Because a lot of people uh, argue 
you argue that the far right that is taking over that has taken over in Italy uh, has been very detrimental for democracy within Italy. So, to what extent was the Communist Party before it was disbanded in in the early 1990s? To what extent was the Communist Party, whether it realized it or not, to what extent did it save Italian democracy, or at least save it for a while? Well, I mean, in the uh, well, one so what one kind of contradiction is the fact that the communist party was a a, a massive uh, a party in terms of its membership as i said you know when i say two million members that's not like registering to vote in the primary for the democrats or republicans that's like being a paying member and you know often like being expected to turn up for meetings and things uh, and you know there's a whole kind of social life built around the party millions of people in cooperatives uh, all sorts so in that sense alone, it's a great democratic force. And, uh, you know, it does popular education, it even runs literacy classes, and it turns people from very humble backgrounds into political leaders. Um, Pietro Secchia uh, was a f- uh, editor of its newspaper in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Uh, he had had to leave school aged 12 uh, to work in a tannery. Uh, you know, like treating leather uh, and work, you know, work full time there. Or Giuseppe Di Vittorio, the leader of the main trade union federation, he had started work as a full time agricultural labourer aged eight uh, and yet became, you know, like a national politician. So like in, in that way, the, the party had a, a tremendous effect in democratising Italian society because it because it basically broke open all of the kind of elite uh, codes of politics and uh, and allowed a kind of social assent for for working class people. Um, at this, and you know the other important aspect of its fight for democracy is that um, it's kind of easy to think that um, after 1945, like the Allies came and then fascism was defeated and liberal democracy reigned free. But in reality, most of the um, officials of the fascist state remained in their jobs. Only about uh, 1% were actually purged in 1945. And that also meant that a lot of, um, well, not only a lot of police departments, but actually almost all police departments into the 1950s still had like the same commissioners who had been appointed under fascism. So in those circumstances, it could be very difficult for um the left uh the labor movement trade unions to assert even very basic constitutional rights uh because you know it's like if you're in some village and uh the the landowner has hired mafiosi to come and shoot at your picket line and then the police are also on side then your like formal democratic rights don't really count for much and in the 1950s and 1960s, um, there was very harsh repression against the labor movement, even in democratic Italy. In 1960, uh, there was even an attempt to form a, a Christian democratic government uh, reliant on fascist votes in parliament. And that lasted uh, three months. So the Communist Party was uh, extremely necessary, decisive in, in fighting to defend those uh, very basic kind of rights. Uh, 
in that sense, of course, yes. I mean, uh, the Communist Party was, was, was absolutely the party of defending democracy in Italy. At the same time, the Italian Communist Party uh, internally was a hierarchical and uh, Leninist organization, which had been formed, you know, in the Comintern during the period of Stalin's leadership. So it certainly wasn't like uh, everyone could just say whatever they thought. I uh, didn't have internal factions and so on. Uh, but its strength came precisely from the fact that it, you know, built very impressive uh, collective organization, very effective solidarity. Uh, even in very harsh conditions, both under fascism and then uh, in the Christian democratic period that followed. You write that in the 1990s, many insisted that the modernization of Italy relied on the external bind, as we were mentioning earlier, provided by the European project. Italy was at that point one of the most federalist countries seduced by the prospect of becoming a normal country. Back then, not only the liberal center left, but the Lega Nord and Silvio Berlusconi held up the EU as a force that would heal Italy's public finances and improve its political culture. But you add the third largest eurozone economy and Italian default or exit from the single currency would spoke uh, wide scale turmoil, yet the necessary relief through debt cancelization would jeopardize the eurozone's most fundamental dogmas, both too big to fail and too big to save. Italy is instead condemned to a permanent crisis management regime, outright collapse forever, kicked a few months down the road. So is nationalism in Italy then today about finding a solution to Italy's problems among Italians and Italy and not outsiders? Is nationalism a reaction to foreign model failure like what might be perceived as the foreign model failure of the European Union? Well, I think that a lot of the reasons for the radicalization of the Italian right do have to do with the European Union in the sense that um, uh, the, 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 the votes for the, the Lega and then the post-fascist party uh, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, who together represent about 40% of the electorate. You know, so there's that very strong far-right block. And most of that isn't like... Uh, you know, workers disgruntled with the left who've been left behind and then turning to the far right. It's like a bit like in the United States. It's like the number of people who vote for Trump who are actually blue collar, former Democratic workers is pretty small as a percentage of the total. His overall electorate is richer. But, you know, there is a small slice of, uh, of blue collar workers who've gone over to him. What's um, the the more important phenomenon is that under the euro, um, Italian uh, exporters have been under very intense pressure uh, due to basically the fact that Italy is no longer like able to compete on the basis of price uh, with other European countries. It can't devaluate. It can't devalue its country, uh, currency. Uh, and also, you know, as I mentioned, kind of falling public investment and so on. So, so those kind of factors have driven a certain uh, hostility towards the European project uh, among um, what would have used to be kind of a traditional conservative uh, middle class and business, uh, small business owners and so on. Um, that said, 
Um, I don't think that what this represents is actually a move to bring Italy out of the European Union or indeed out of the, the euro as a currency. Um, because I think the, um, the and, and, and at the same time, uh, the, the, the Lega, the, the far right parties, uh, they're, they're not, you know, they're not talking about like austerity and privatization and so on. Uh, their, you know, their opposition to the European Union is mainly expressed in, in a kind of in uh, cultural terms, in uh, anti-immigration, in a defense of national identity. Uh, and the great contradiction of, of uh, Ma uh, Matteo Salvini's party, the Lega in particular, is it's always actually been a pro-European party. In the 1990s, uh, the, the Lega Nord, as it was then, uh, Northern uh, Autonomist or Separatist Party, you know, its message was precisely, we Northern Italians are like real Europeans, we're a normal country, we're not like these lazy and corrupt Southerners and so on. And, you know, part of that is, uh, is still present in, in what the Lega says. Um, so, you know, there's very different uh, moods within the, uh, the social base of the far right uh, as to their attitude towards, uh, towards the single currency, towards the Eurozone. Uh, but despite all of the noise, the rhetoric against Brussels and against, uh, you know, against you know, kind of like the, the, against the, the weakening of the nation state and so on, um, I don't see them as having a project to to take Italy out of Europe. Uh, and, and that's you know, a reason for the, uh, the, the kind of stasis we see now, which is that there's very intense um, rhetoric over the current uh, European ba bailout measures for Italy. Yet what the parties from centre left to far right actually uh, propose to do uh, isn't actually very different. You also write that the generational shift from the Berlusconi era to the nationalist right represents a formidable and lasting enemy for the left. The Lega's uh, recently won mayors and regional offices should allow the extension of its hegemony and the deepening of its organization. And as in the days of anti-Berlusconism, purely defensive measures, the moral call to rally all forces against Salvini, Matteo Salvini, the leader of the Five Star Movement, to or in the La Lega, sorry, the Lega. La sorry, La Lega, uh, to stop the barbarians at the gates, risk merely feeding his bid to polarize the political field around his own chosen themes. So I think this is a question that anybody could be asking right now, not just Italians, but here in the United States. He could be asking this question in the Philippines. He could be asking this question in a lot of places in Brazil. How can the left not feed into that polarization? After all, isn't that what political victory is all about? Distinguishing yourselves from your opponent in every way possible? Doesn't politics naturally lead to polarization so how can the left mm -hmm. overcome that well i think you're 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 absolutely right the important thing in politics is to is to polarize it's to build your own camp your own uh coalition of of supporters and you know uh uniting against a common enemy can have that role um but i think the problem is that Whereas Salvini has united lots of, uh, sort of odds and sods, lots of fragments of other parties on the basis of a pretty clear theme, which is nationalism, anti-immigration, and it should also be said, 
drastic tax cuts because the Lega is not a party for like it's not like the party for white Italian workers against the immigrants. It's a it's in every way a right wing party with a classic pro-business anti-worker agenda as well as nationalism. So the problem for the left is like you can't just respond to that within exactly its own terms by saying that, well, Salvini says he stands up for Italians against immigrants. So in reply, we will stand up for immigrants. Like the left, of course, should do that. But at the same time, it also needs to offer something to its own social base, to the mass of Italians who have historically voted for left wing parties or the kind of social groups who we might expect to vote for social parties. Sorry, for left wing parties. Um, And instead, what's happened is that the left in Italy has basically abandoned the entire terrain of um, things like investment in public services, investment in building infrastructure, uh, plans to uh, uh, create employment, uh, measures to give people better rights at work, to increase wages, better employment stability, like all of that has gone out the window. Um, So as I sort of hinted in my answer to the last question, the the right wing electorate has radicalised and is now behind, you know, openly nationalist and in some measure also far right parties. Um, Whereas the kind of people who used to vote for the left, um, blue collar workers, workers for public services, even white collar workers, uh, so white collar workers, um, their turnout in elections has fallen dramatically. And that's the main factor that's allowing the right to win. It's not that blue collar workers are voting for far right parties. It's that they're not voting because they don't see anything out there that represents their interests. Well, so so wait, so why that seeming unwillingness to show how politics can improve the lives, how how politics can work for the people? Why wouldn't the left be offering that right now? What does that tell you about where the left is in Italy? Well, uh, the the left the left in Italy basically no longer exists because what you have opposed to the far right pro business etc. parties are liberal pro business parties. And their uncritical and enthusiastic support for the European project is the basis of this, because time and time again, uh, parties of the, you know, the governments of the centre left in, from the 1990s till uh, two years ago when they were last in power, uh, they consistently advocated austerity as, as like a necessary hurdle to get through in order to comply with the European rules. Italy has 2.5 trillion euros of public debt. That's like 40,000 euros per person. Like that isn't going to be, uh, (laughs) that's not gonna disappear just because like you cut spending on uh, infrastructure or hospitals or something. It's like that has to be canceled in order to make the economy viable. Because what's happening now is that uh, for the last 20 years, Italy has run uh, primary budget uh, surpluses, which means that the state spends less 
than it takes in taxes. So that means falling investment, falling spending in public services and so on. Yet at the same time, the debt has continued to increase. And in order to comply with European budget balancing rules, the left therefore endlessly, uh, literally endlessly, continuously advocates austerity measures. And there's always this kind of uh, argument like, oh, only a little further, you know, the, the sacrifices of now will be worth it tomorrow when we restore our fiscal credibility. But that's never going to happen. And they're not willing, you know, they're not honest about that uh, because the, the commitment to the, to the European project. And, you know, let's, let's be clear, because um, I think, um, you know, it's like there's this kind of idea some people have, which is like the European Union has a bunch of neoliberal governments. But if they were voted out and replaced with left wing governments, then the EU's policy would change. But, but that's not how things are, precisely because Europe, uh, the European Union, has a constitution which mandates budget balancing, which mandates privatisation, which mandates uh, reforms of the economy, which basically means privatisation again, um, which, which stop any Italian government from, ever, from, you know, it denies the, any Italian government uh, the tools with which to carry out counter-cyclical policies, uh, to invest in uh, all the things, you know, creating jobs, better public services, and so on. Um, so precisely because the, you know, I mean, there's a great quote by uh, Thomas uh, Piketty, where he says, it's like, if you, if you deny states the power to make any decisions, except from over-border controls, then the only political debate you're going to have is going to be about border controls. And that's the terrain on which right wing nationalists will win. Um, so basically, I mean, unless there's some force on the Italian left, which is willing to confront the problem of Italy's relationship with the Eurozone and the European Union, and which is willing to defy European rules uh, and force some sort of cancellation of Italian debt, uh, I don't see how the how the left could even conceivably recover because it's just denying itself the 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 economic policy tools which even a even a moderate social democratic government would need. Denying themselves themselves their own leftist tools. That's just uh, sounds a little bit familiar here. Uh, one last question for you, David. We have been speaking with Rome-based writer and translator David Broder, author of First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. This is a really fascinating book, and everybody should go check it out because it basically lays out the exact template for what is happening here in the United States. Dave is a contributing editor for Jacobin Magazine and regularly writes on Italian politics. You can follow David on Twitter at Broderly. That's his last name, Broder, B-R-O-D-E-R, followed by the letters L-Y. So you quote, uh, our last question for all of our guests, as you know, is the question from hell. The question <laughs> we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. <laughs> you, you, write, uh, you write that in uh, socialist Luciano Galino's terms, the loss of collective hope, the belief that common actions can have a real bearing on political and economic decisions has given rise to individual and atomized responses characterized by disillusionment and despair. As long as there is this unwillingness to show how politics can improve lives, only focusing on the oppositional politics of like Berlusconism or anti-Trumpism, 
will we continue to have increasingly what right-wing leaderships and governments does that unwillingness to show how politics can improve lives lead to increasingly right-wing leadership hmm. well firstly I'd, I'd say that if there isn't some sort of uh, political movement to reassert the power of the Italian state to make uh, to to make decisions on to make decisions on investment and so on, then nothing good is going to happen. And all we're going to have is basically a mix of different shades of more or less xenophobic uh, neoliberalism. I mean, there's plenty. I mean, you know, I, I as you say, I mean, I take Italy as a great example and template for uh, what's happening in other Western countries. But actually, also, if we look at countries like, for example, Poland or Hungary, in some ways, they're even further along the same uh, direction in the sense in the sense that you just don't even have the bases of any kind of solidaristic or even really kind of like uh, progressive or socially liberal uh, politics. You know, there, there was a election in Poland uh, about well, three or four weeks ago where basically like the candidates are like there's like a pro-European conservative against a far-right candidate, and that's your political choice. The mass of uh, working people don't have uh, power in society unless it's through solidarity and unless it's uh, through the ability to like collectively force legislation in their own interests to guarantee their rights and so on. So if instead people are atomized, they don't believe that it's worth trying, uh, or indeed if, you know, if people are like working multiple jobs and having to look after the kids and they don't have any public services to rely on, then all of those conditions are going to make it ever harder for the left to revive for any kind of politics of solidarity to take root. Uh, so broadly, I, I, I think the answer is like, well, yes, uh, basically, if, if it's just a matter of like um, denunciation of right wingers, then that's never really going to be able to mobilize uh, the majority of the population. There has to be some like material interest for people to want to get involved and, and to take part. At the same time, I think uh, looking at the, the more kind of like short term uh, volatility of Italian politics, um, there's a slightly strange phenomenon going on at the moment in the sense that, you know, like Salvini and the Lega were, are, you know, and are and remain the, the big force on the, on the far right. They have hoovered up a lot of the support from other right wing parties, including Berlusconi's Forza Italia. But now we're starting to see the kind of next step where another uh, far right party is starting to win uh, support from the Lega. And there's more, more or less direct transfer of, of votes and polling support from the Lega to Fratelli d'Italia, uh, which is like the heir to like uh, historic fascism. Um, and is a, you know, Italian nationalist uh, party. Um, but I think in, in, in ways, uh, you know, so obviously this is like a horrifying uh, prospect and, you know, it's not a good thing if Salvini loses five points in the polls, if it only goes to some post-fascist party. 
Um, but at the, but at the same time, I mean, I think that this uh, in 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 ways there's kind of different axes of of, of right wing politics, and and these parties aren't just the same. Um, so this this new rising party Fratelli d'Italia, uh, which is now polling about fifteen percent, um, their their kind of approach is much is is less Eurosceptic and much more intensely focused on Cold War against China and against Russia. And I think within like European conservatism, we can see uh, this kind of uh, union of like center-right traditional conservative parties and then elements of the, of the, of the historic far-right who are uniting in this very strong anti-Putin and anti-China uh, line. And I think that that's uh, that's like a, a you know a key uh, key development, uh, which will obviously be important as China continues its rise. Um, so in that sense, the the kind of populist Euroscepticism of Salvini may be uh, edged out by a, a new and different kind of uh, reactionary nationalist politics. Uh, but that's uh, certainly not a very uh, hopeful uh, note to end on. However, it uh, <laughs> happens to be the the reality. So yeah, that's, there, that, there is the, an, that is definitely the answer from hell for the question from hell. Because uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like anything that's happening here at all, does it, David? <laughs> so it's always great to hear your voice. It's great to have you back on the show. We'll be bugging you far sooner than two years from now. You can find both of the past interviews that we've done with David at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Broder, B-R-O-D-E-R. And again, you got to get David's new book, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. Follow him on Twitter at Broderly. Thank you so much for being back on the show, David. It's really nice to talk to you. Great. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what's the name of the system you want? What's the name of the system you want? Our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a This is Hell face mask, but you have to have your answers into us by the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth when we announce the winner. This week, Jeff prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. Alex, do we have any listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What is the name of the system you want? What is the name of the system that you want? want eric t says a perpetual state of napping mm. nikki says voluntary mississippi gut bucket blues bioregionalism <laughs> okay gut bucket do you know what that is it's a wash tub like the musical instrument I, oh I, yeah i had to look that up because i thought gut bucket might have been something i know else. people who played those buckets that does not surprise me uh <laughs> soul hm says collaborative anarchy michael lp says less crystal meth and more shit kicking <laughs> what is the name of the system, system? That you want? <laughs> what is the name of the system you want Marshall W. says, global scale harm reduction. We have an addiction to everything convenient, cheap, and disposable. Sweet. I wish I was addicted to something that was cheap. <laughs> uh, Astrid N. says, anything but this shit. <laughs> Colin S. says, anarcho-laziness <laughs> with comfy characteristics. I like that. What is the name of the system that you want? Chandler H. says, fully automated, luxury, titoist, hoaxist, posadist, mertzist. Jeez. Communism. Yeesh. Andrew P. says, eco-socialism. Ray O. says, mixed if not that, then more Herbert. <laughs> Do you have any idea of what Ray just said? Uh, See, Stephen S. says socialism. Frank Herbert, I guess. Socialism with international characteristics. Mm-hmm. Zach N. says in before anyone else says fully automated luxury queer space anarcho-communism. And finally, <laughs> before anybody else says that, because that was definitely going to be said. Finally, Aaron D. says anti-disestablishmentarianism, <laughs> collective meritocracy. And gift shop. Uh, Alex, who's 
<laughs> I like the gift shop. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show, streaming at 10 a.m. and 10 in the morning, just like today's show. Sarah Anderson from IPS will be back on the show to talk about uh, exactly what is happening uh, politically and economically to the United States Post Office, which probably does not have very much time. <laughs> and uh, in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin is uh, throwing eggs at worker. I'm trying to yeah. I, I, I close the window. Yeah, it's, it's something involving eggs and workers. Prepares rotten eggs for the workers of the world. Also, Sarah Anderson, now... Uh, the earliest interview I have found with her is from March 15, 2003, which I believe is the exact date the United States launches the invasion and eventually the occupation of Iraq. On that date, she was on our show to talk about uh, the coalition of the coerced, how the United States had, how the Bush administration had coerced so many other countries into being part of that invasion and occupation. I believe that was the first time she was ever on our show, March 15, 2003. So if you want to hear that interview with Sarah. I believe we'll be sharing that for on Friday's Patreon podcast. So if you want to hear that, as well as I'll be taking a deep dive into the celebrity industry here in the United States. And it's much more disgusting than any pornography. Well, there is some pornography. It's a little bit more gross. But not much. Not much. It's really gross. But to hear that, ex- hear that Patreon podcast exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to David Broder for being today's guest staring into the abyss. So you don't have to, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.